invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke as we begin to study through this book of the Bible this Lord's Day. And as you turn there, I just want to say uh, thank you once again for your uh, prayers for me over the course of this uh, last few months. Uh, Friday will mark uh, three months since I got really a new lease on life and, and was blessed to receive a kidney transplant. And I appreciate your prayers. I ask that you would continue to pray. I'm reminded each morning uh, as I take a handful of about 30 pills that uh, I don't have a lot of immunity right now. I won't for some time. And so uh, probably the most dangerous thing for me is just picking up a, a common sickness. And so that's why you'll, you'll see me wearing a mask for a while. Uh, that's why I may seem a bit standoffish. Uh, it's not because you smell or anything. I just, I need to stay away from you from a distance uh, for a little while just to make sure I don't get sick. And so if you would pray for that. Uh, but again, I thank you for your prayers. I thank you for uh, so much that you've done for me and my family to allow me this opportunity. And I am so incredibly thankful uh, to be back in this pulpit this Lord's Day. Uh, prayerfully, I remember how to do this. And so we're going to look at Luke's gospel. If you've been with us, you know that uh, we go through books of the Bible here at Bloomfield Baptist Church, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And over the course of the last 12 years, uh, I've gone through a model of preaching through an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book. And so uh, we just finished, before my transplant, walking through First and Second Samuel. And today we come to Luke's gospel. If you were with us back in around late 2014 to early 2016, uh, we walked through the book of Acts at that time. And, and Acts is really part two of Luke's gospel. Uh, both of these books were given to us by the Lord through a man named Luke. And we know from God's word that Luke was a physician. We read in Colossians 4.14, Paul refers to him as Luke, the beloved physician who greets you. And we know as well from our study of scripture that Luke was a Gentile uh, who was converted to faith in Christ. We know that he and Paul ministered together. Some believe it was likely Paul that even introduced him to the gospel. And we know that he and Paul were close, that Luke accompanied him on many of his missionary journeys. In fact, at the end of Luke's ministry, or excuse me, of Paul's ministry in life, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes, Luke alone is with me. He, he was there with Paul to the very end likely attending to his medical needs. We know that Luke, by volume, wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else, 25% of it. And we know that Luke's gospel, as well as the book of Acts, were both addressed to the same person, someone we know very little about, just their name, Theophilus. And that name in and of itself has led some to believe that this wasn't even a real person, that it was more a, a character of someone because that name, Theophilus, means lover of God. But from study, I can let you know that, that I personally, many people believe this was a real person. In fact, Luke refers to him as such when he calls him the most excellent Theophilus. We have gathered today not just to consider words that a doctor from ancient times, wrote to a man we know little about. We have gathered because these words that were written by Dr. Luke were inspired by the Holy Spirit and have been used throughout the history of the church to strengthen us in our faith and to bring many to faith. And my prayer 
is that God would do both of those things as we begin this study today. And so I want to, with that introduction, ask you to stand once again out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Uh, I'll encourage you, it's just one sentence today, and so uh, we will not have long passages like we had in First and Second Samuel. There is much that is packed into a few words. And so we're going to look at this first sentence that goes over the first four verses. And this is what God's Word says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You would pray with me. Father, we ask this morning that you would give us certainty about the things that we have been taught. As we begin this, this orderly account that has been handed down to us, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us uh, our renewed reverence for your word, that, that we would not just glance over these words, these verses, these chapters as we study through Luke, but that, that we would truly see this as, as life-giving and life-changing. And Lord, in a world that is so filled with chaos and wickedness today, I pray that we would not be people of the world, but that we would be people of your word. So help us, Lord, now to submit ourselves to your truth and to be transformed by it. Help us, Lord, to repent of sin and to trust in you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the late 1800s, one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest woman in the world, was a financier named Hetty Green. And when she died in 1915, she had amassed a fortune worth, at that time, over $100 million. In today's dollars, that would have been close to $3 billion. And yet, people don't remember her as being someone of great wealth. They remember her for being an enormous cheapskate. Although she had access to all the resources anyone could ever desire or want for. She, she lived like a pauper. In fact, her name appears in the Guinness Book of World Records as the greatest miser that ever lived. That this woman that had so much began each day eating a cold bowl of oatmeal. Uh, she ate oatmeal because it was the cheapest thing you could buy. She ate it cold because she felt it was too expensive to heat. She was so cheap that when her own son had an injury, an infection in his leg, rather than calling a physician to their home or going to a nearby hospital, she spent days looking for a free clinic. In fact, she spent so much time that by the time someone actually examined her son's injury, which at the beginning was very mild, they had to amputate his leg because the infection had spread. Imagine that. Someone with access to all of these riches, living in utter poverty. 
As I consider the tragedy of Hetty Green's life, I can't help but think of how it illustrates so much of what we see in the church today. And not that each of us has access to billions of dollars. No, according to the scripture, we have access to something worth more than that. David in Psalm 19 says this. He says, God's word is to be desired more than gold, even much fine gold. He says, we have something worth more than all the riches of the world in the treasure that God has given us through his word. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 72, says it this way. The law of your mouth, speaking of God's word, is better to me than thousands of gold and silver. As we open up God's word, we are reminded, friends, that we have a treasure at our disposal. And yet the great irony is this, that for so many of us in our conversations, we'll talk about wanting to know God's will, wanting to know what God would have for us. And yet we live in in a spiritual poverty because we spend so much time actually opening up the word, walking through it, examining it, being taught by it, being transformed by it. In fact, the sad reality of the church today is that at a time when we have more access to the Word of God than any other point in history, at a time where for many of us we have multiple copies of God's Word in our home, at our offices, in our cars, when we have so much access to the truth of what God has said, we also live in a day when we are ignorant of so many. We are a distracted people. Our focus has turned to other places. And so as we begin our study of Luke's gospel today, I think this is a a fitting time for the Lord to remind me and to remind all of us that it's time to put our focus back in the right spot. That this word he's given us, it is indeed a treasure and it is foundational. And so I ask you this morning, as we begin to walk through this word together, to prepare your hearts, each Lord's day, to hear from what the God of all creation has to say to us, and to be transformed by this word. And so we'll begin today just simply looking at this first sentence as this introduction, and and at what it teaches us about this word God has given us. I put the first point there in your outline in front of you. It says this, we're reminded here that God has entrusted his word to us. And he has entrusted his word to us. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning, they were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. They, they delivered them to us. Luke starts out here by explaining why it is he's even writing Theophilus in the first place. And he's saying that there there are all kinds of narratives that have been collected at this point, put together. He he may have been referring to the, the Gospel of Mark as one of those narratives. And we know as we study the Gospels together that there are many similarities between Luke's Gospel and Mark's Gospel. It's likely that Mark's Gospel was one of the resources Luke used in compiling his Gospel together. There were other accounts, some that at this point have been lost to us, others that God has preserved in his holy word for us. 
And so Luke is saying he, he has written about these things that others have written about. And in doing that, he, he has collected these sources, these testimonies, these eyewitnesses. And he's saying that this has been delivered to me. And so Luke doesn't start out from the outset to say, listen, I, I saw all of this. I experienced all of this. So now I want to tell you about all of this. He's saying, no, I've gone through the painstaking labor of researching and studying and examining that I might present to you this, this authentic compilation of the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Many of you are aware that today marks 21 years since the tragic events of September 11, 2001. And many times in, in remembrance of what happened on that day, you'll, you'll hear people say, never forget. Never forget. And yet the reality is, is that estimates are that, that at least a quarter, if not more, of Americans that are alive today, they were born after the events of September 11, 2001. And if we don't preserve our history, it's easily forgotten. And so one of the things I've, I've personally done each year in recent years is I've tried to, to read an account, read a book that is connected with the events of that day so that I won't forget. And one of the ones I'm rereading this year is an account called The Only Plane in the Sky, An Oral History of 9-11. This particular account is written by a man named Garrett Graff. And what Graff does in his book is he doesn't write about what he went through on September 11th. He doesn't write about his experiences, what he saw. Rather, he and others spent 17 years interviewing over 500 witnesses that were eyewitnesses to the events that happened at the Twin Towers, at the Pentagon, family members of those who died on Flight 93 that went down in that field in Pennsylvania. And from all of these accounts, he is able to present this compilation of, of here's what happened. Here's the, the firsthand experience of so many. He writes about a security guard who, in leaving the South Tower, looked around and saw women's high heels stacked in piles everywhere. He couldn't understand, well, why are there so many high heel shoes? Until someone explained to him that as thousands of businesswomen were fleeing from the towers, they kicked off those heels and they ran for their lives. And he tells account after account of people who survived witnessing firefighters going up into the tower that they were fleeing from, knowing that it would likely cost them their lives, and for many it did. He writes in that book about an account that's also in another book entitled The Red Bandana about a young man named Wells Crowther. Wells Crowther grew up uh, part of a long line of firefighters. He himself was a volunteer firefighter as a young man. He worked on the 104th floor of one of the towers. And as soon as the plane struck, he knew he needed to get out of that tower. He needed to call his mother because she would be worried about him. And so he called his mother. He got her voicemail. He simply left her a message that said, Mother, this is Wells. I just wanted you to know I'm safe and I'm fine. And that's the last time his mother ever heard from him. By witness accounts, Wells then went back into the tower, began to ascend the hundred flights of stairs he had just descended in order to rescue as many people as he could. One of the people that he was able to 
rescue later wrote about her account. And she wrote about how this young man with a red bandana, this signature trademark of his that would later be written about in that book, The Red Bandana, he had this red bandana covering his face. He came onto the 103rd floor that was smoke-filled, that had people in it that were confused. They couldn't find an exit. He was able to point them towards the one stairwell that went all the way down 103 flights because he had just ascended that stairwell and knew it was the only means of escape. And through leading them to that door, he saved their lives. And they were the last ones to see him as he ascended back into the smoke to rescue as many people as he could. We know this account not because Wells was able to write about it. We know it because of eyewitnesses who saw it. And hundreds of other eyewitnesses. And then you, you read accounts like this and you get this, this fuller picture of what took place 21 years ago today. Luke, in his gospel here, he begins by saying, I'm going to give you this vivid and full account, not because I saw it all, but because I went to the painstaking effort inspired by the Holy Spirit in order to compile all these eyewitness testimonies from the people who walked with Jesus, that the people who were eyewitnesses to his glory, the ones who were there as he performed miracles, as he healed people as he brought the dead back to life, the ones that were there at the cross and saw him crucified, the ones that were there at the tomb and saw it was empty, the ones who witnessed the resurrected Christ. I talked to them. I recorded their words carefully. And now I'm presenting it to you that you might believe, that you might be strengthened in your faith. And he reminds Theophilus, and God is reminding us that these words that were delivered to him, they, they didn't just come from this careful examination. No, they were delivered to him ultimately by God. This reminds us of the importance of the, the doctrine of inspiration, that doctrine that we're reminded of when we read passages like the one I read before from 2 Timothy or 2 Peter chapter 1. That reminder that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It reminds us of words like the ones we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And so as we consider these passages that teach us about the doctrine of inspiration, we, we then look to, look to Luke's gospel and and we get a picture then of what this God-breathed, carried along by the Holy Spirit process looks like in Luke's life. And notice Luke here doesn't say to Theophilus, Theophilus, I just, I meditated and I prayed and, and I put my quill to the paper, the parchment, and I just waited for God to mysteriously write words in front of me. Now, what does he say? That the way that God breathed this word out, the way that the Spirit carried him along was through a careful and orderly process. And he says to Theophilus, let me tell you about this orderly process. There were eyewitnesses. Now that Greek word he uses for eyewitnesses is autopsis. It's the word that we get our word autopsy from. Luke here, Dr. Luke, is saying essentially that, 
that he did an autopsy on the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Christ. That, that he went through this careful, orderly process, a, a process entirely directed by God, entirely inspired by the Spirit, in order to lay out for Theophilus the ministry of Jesus, that he might be transformed by it. Luke is saying, what God has delivered to me, I am now sharing with you. Which brings us to that second point there in your outline. We are called to share God's word with others. You notice verse 3, Luke continues, it, it seemed good to me also, good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Again, here Luke is explaining the process by saying, here, here's this, this orderly account. Here's this autopsy that was performed. And in, in doing this, and laboring through this, Luke is able to present to Theophilus and to us many details that we only know from Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel, being the longest of the four gospel accounts, also includes many accounts and details that are that are only there in Luke's gospel. And for example, we find in Luke about the birth. We find out in Luke about the birth of John the Baptist. That's not reported in any other gospel. Now, the first two chapters of Luke aren't reported in any other gospel. The events that take place in them. It's in Luke's gospel that we learn about the the praise and the response of the good news by Mary and Zechariah and Simeon. It's in Luke's gospel that we read about the angel and the heavenly host and their praise before the shepherds announcing the birth of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. It's from Luke's gospel alone that we learn about the parables of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son. It's only through Luke's gospel that we learn about what Jesus taught on the road to Emmaus. Luke is the one who gives us a greater and much fuller picture of the women who followed Jesus. It's only through the details and accounts that others leave out that we find Luke now presenting these things to Theophilus. Now again, I referenced this in the beginning. We, we don't really know much about who Theophilus is. We know that his name meant lover of God. We also know historically that Theophilus was a fairly common name in Luke's day. So if you're looking for a, a baby name today, I'll present to you Theophilus. Not so common these days. <laughs> but in Luke's day, it was, it was very common, which, which adds to the thought that this was likely a real person. In fact, Luke here refers to him as the most excellent Theophilus. He makes that reference one other time in the book of Acts, in Acts 23, 26, where there he's referring to the Roman governor Felix. And so many have taken that to suggest that Theophilus was likely a Roman official who was converted to the faith, likely through Luke's ministry. Or it was a Roman official that Luke and Paul and others had encountered, had shared the gospel with, and now Luke has gone through this painstaking effort to present once again the gospel to him, that he might repent and that he might believe. Whatever the case, it's clear that Luke is saying to Theophilus that this message given to him by God was a message that he was called to share with others. And friends, we are called to do the same thing. In fact, I couldn't help but 
think about the, the ending of Matthew's gospel as I was studying the beginning of Luke's gospel. Because it's at the ending of Matthew's gospel that we receive the clearest form of the great commission from our Lord Jesus. That commission where the Lord calls us to go to the nations with the gospel. We read this, Jesus came to them, the disciples, and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says to the disciples, Jesus is saying to us this morning, we, we have a responsibility we bear in all that we have been taught. Well, we're not called as believers just to, to be sponges, to, to soak all this in simply for our own benefit. No, we're, we're called to, to soak it in and then to squeeze it out. Well, we're called to take what we've been taught to others who've not been taught in order that they might be taught so that then they can go and teach others. That this gospel isn't just for you today. It's for those who've never heard. And so Luke here is taking what he has received and, and now he's going to share it with others. Now, I thought over the weekend about that story I shared with you about Wells Crowther. I thought about his mother receiving that voicemail from her son. Her son saying, Mama, I'm fine, and then never hearing from her son again. I thought about how she spent months after September 11th trying to figure out what happened to her son. Perhaps he was injured on the way out of the building. Perhaps something happened to him after that phone call, only to learn through going through all these eyewitness testimonies that he was responsible for going back in that building and saving others, people who had no other means of escape. As his mother went through this process over the course of months, she was able to identify that there were at least 18 people that Wells was responsible for saving. And I thought about what, what would motivate someone who was safe and secure, who, who had just escaped danger and death, to, to then turn around and go back into that danger. And the answer is real simple. He, he did it. He laid down his life to save others. He, he gave up his safety, his, his comfort, in order that others might be saved. I'll remind you this morning, the, the call to share the gospel with others, it, it is scary. It requires us to step out of our comfort zone. For, for many of us, it's not a comfortable Thing to do, to step out in faith, to talk to someone about their sin, to call them to repent of that sin, to trust in Jesus. It's uncomfortable. And so our gravitational pull then is not to do it. When we become very comfortable in our faith, just kind of keeping our faith to ourselves. When we live in this, this day and age where everyone preaches acceptance and tolerance, except for when it comes to the truth of God's word. They, they don't want to accept that. And because of that, we, we fear stepping out and talking to others. And yet I'll remind you this morning, friends, that there is a burning building about to collapse. That the scripture says of this world, that this world and its desires, that they are passing away and they're passing quickly. 
And I'm not here this morning to tell you that I know the day or hour. Scripture says real clear, we should not believe we know the day or hour. We don't know the day or hour, but this is what we know. God has given us this moment. He's given us this opportunity on this day to tell those in a burning building that there's a means of escape. He has given us this opportunity to go into a smoke-filled room and to point towards the only exit available to us. And God, who in his riches and glory, he, he could do this through any way he wanted to do it. He's chosen to invite you and me in this process. He's called us to be a part of going into this collapsing, burning world and to share about the only means of escape that comes through the life-giving message, the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He has not promised us that it would be comfortable or that it would be easy, but he has called us to it nonetheless. And so as we walk through Luke's gospel together, I, I want to encourage you today, if you've not already, to begin praying by name for someone that God has put in your path, perhaps in your family, perhaps a close friend, perhaps just an acquaintance, perhaps a new neighbor that you've just met. But someone that doesn't believe in the gospel, someone who's yet to repent and trust in Christ. And I want to invite you today to begin praying by name for that person, that they might come to the saving knowledge of Jesus that we have come to. Luke here reminds us that we shouldn't just take this message that's been delivered to us and hold on to it. No, we need to go and share it with others as he's doing here with the author. And he tells him clearly in this introduction, God's entrusted the word to him. He's called to share the word with others. And then finally, point three, he reminds us here that God's word is the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation of our faith. Verse four, Luke shares with Theophilus that the purpose of his gospel is this, quote, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Certainty. That, that word here means that, that he wants Theophilus to know exactly and completely. It literally means through and through. And he's saying, I, I want you to have everything you need, Theophilus. I want you to have full certainty. I want you to understand that these things that you've heard about Jesus, they are 100% true, and you can be confident in this truth. How can we today have that confidence that Luke writes about? The same way that he's telling Theophilus he can have that confidence. It comes through hearing and reading and believing the Word of God. Because, friends, outside of that, we are left with nothing more than a cold bowl of oatmeal. God has said to us, here are the riches. Here is the treasure. The question for us today is, will that be what directs our faith? Because you see, for many of us, the reason that we live in spiritual poverty is because our faith isn't directed by the Word of God. It's directed by other things. I became a follower of Jesus uh, right at 30 years ago. I was a college student in North Carolina. Someone shared the gospel with me. I responded to the gospel, and I can remember so vividly in those early days just just desiring this treasure and learning from this treasure of God's Word. 
and the man who led me to faith and then discipled me in the faith sat me down one day. We were having lunch there in the student center. And he said, Richard, I, I want to talk to you about what it is that directs our faith. And he took out a napkin and, and he drew, drew on there uh, a train. It was three simple diagrams. He drew the, the engine of the train. He, he drew a, a coal cart for the train. And then he drew a caboose for the train. And he said, Richard, you don't have to be an engineer to figure this out. What, well, what's going to happen to the train if, if the coal cart is shoveling the coal into the engine? I said, well, I assume the train's going to move. He said, yeah. I said, what's going to happen if the coal cart is shoveling the coal into the caboose? <laughs> I said, well, I don't imagine the train's going to go anywhere. And then he just wrote three words on this diagram. Under the engine, he wrote fact. And under the coal cart, he wrote faith. And then under the caboose, he wrote feelings. And he said, Richard, what you've just described, it, it's the same thing that happens when we put our, our faith in our feelings instead of in the facts. And yet, as we had that conversation, I realized that for me and so many people, that's how our faith is so often directed, is how we feel. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is our, our feelings change quite a bit, don't they? And so often our, our, our feelings, they aren't really rooted in anything. And friends, if our faith is just directed in, in what we feel and what we experience, we don't really grow in that faith much. It's a it's an up and down experience. It's all over the page. But if our faith is rooted in something more, as God's called it to be, if our faith is rooted in the facts, the, the, the revealed truth of His Word, if we put our faith in what God has said, then just like that picture, our, our faith moves forward and it, and it grows. Now, how do we have faith in today's world? Now, how do we have faith in a day and age when people can't even agree on what a man and a woman is? Now, how do we have faith in a day when people call wickedness good and call that which God has deemed righteous bad? Now, how do we have faith in a wicked world that's a burning tower that's about to collapse. I can assure you this, we don't have faith and grow in that faith by being directed in how we feel. We have that faith, we grow in that faith by trusting in what God has revealed to us. And it's His Word. He's put this treasure before us. The question is, will we feast from this? Or will we settle for a cold bowl of oatmeal? Friends, I encourage you this morning. Come and taste and see and feast in that which God has revealed to us. And I look forward to looking more at that revelation as we walk through Luke's gospel together. If you would pray with me now to that end.